My name's Andrew Wormsley and you're listening to episode 162 of Photography Insights. And this is the show that interviews people from the photography world. And once again we head across the Big Apple for our next guest. Someone from the world of film, the darkroom, education and travels. And it's a great pleasure to talk with someone whose work has been exhibited around places like San Francisco, New York and New Orleans. Peter Caiaphas teaches at the Pratt Institute in New York, is the director of Eakins Press and involved in other photography related boards too. So he's a very busy man, but I wanted to talk to um, Peter about his travels around the US as he seems to manage to make prints and monographs about his work, usually in the form of books. And I mean, you can't really be a good photographer, built, can you? So do check out um, the links further on. Now, Peter has vast experience with teaching, but also with shooting in the dark room too. And he can even remember being in the dark room with his dad, aged two to three years, which is very, very young. Now, it was interesting to talk about his projects, and some of these are called The Way West, Totems, which is all about the links to the past, people in New York and this is very interesting for me and really stood out because he even made 36 inch square prints on aluminium for his exhibition so imagine that and the last one we discussed is the Coney Island water dance which is shot during the 1990s about the polar bear club so in this one listen out for broadening skills default audiences, 80 days in a dark room, a printed medium, discipline and using Instagram. There will be links to Peter's website, his Instagram and of course links for the links to purchase his books including in the US and the UK. And Peter has also kindly sent over some photos so anyone who wants to look at some of these images um, and you'll see what we're referring to with some of this work you'll be able to see them live on my website and that was flogger.co.uk so that's p-h-l-o-g-g-e-r.co-k and of course we're moving on to the show we'd like to thank our friends of the show as always steve at chroma camera so i hope you're checking out his instagram feed because the new little camera, um, new little pinhole camera, up in shots of the first roll of film any second now, so do watch out for that. And of course, anyone wanting low cost developing, check out filmdev.co.uk and some great affordable zines at staticage.co.uk. So, let's play that intro music and away our lovely guest, Peter. And welcome to the show, Peter. How are you? I'm very well, Andrew, and I appreciate uh, your tracking me down and inviting me to be on your show. Thank you. <laughs> Not a problem at all. Um, I'm really grateful, as always, to Lens Scratch, which is where I noticed your work. Uh, fabulous resource. Yeah, great people over there. They do a good job. Mm. Yes, I've interviewed very, uh, a lot of artists through there, so um, great, great people. Now, what I was really interested in is um, summing up yourself was um, obviously a photographer, also an educator, but you're a black and white photographer. Yes. Which is not... <laughs> It's quite unusual in in, what, in many ways now, isn't it? Um, I don't know. I, I guess uh, I think it's probably less and less usual, but hmm. I've never really thought of it that way. I mean, you know, I think if if the question is why black and white, there there are lots of different answers to that. I mean, there is a logistical answer. Actually, there's two different answers. There's a logistical answer, hmm. personal, personally speaking, and then there's a slightly more sort of philosophical uh, answer. And the logistical answer is that um, I like to have control over my work from the, 
beginning to the end, whatever the end may be. Um, and that's uh, most easily done in, in my situation with, with black and white because I still shoot film. I have a dark room 30 feet away from me here in my apartment in Harlem. Um, and, uh, and so that, that, that uh, being able to develop my own film, make my own prints, um, to say nothing of edit my own work and publish my own work, which we can maybe talk about a little bit later has been, hmm. I, I find very empowering. And, and then the other thing, of course, is that, you know, I think many people agree, it's just my personal opinion that, uh, that photographs, um, really are not, um, necessarily primarily about the experience that yielded the photograph. In other words, when I make a picture, I, I don't necessarily intend it to be fully representative of the thing that I'm photographing. I like to think of it as becoming a new experience altogether. The picture is, <laughs> is a whole separate experience. Um, and I think since we see in color, since we, you know, media is primarily in color, uh, increasingly so, I've always felt that a black and white photograph is less likely to be mistaken as some sort of intended version of experience and reality and and is more likely to be embraced as the metaphor that I think of it as being um, when it's in black and white. I don't know if that if that makes sense, but that's mm. why black that's that's the long answer of why black and white. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. I think it's a really special thing to do and I think it takes great care and skill because I think colors can easily be photographed but i think to shoot a good image in black and white i think is much harder because you've got to understand contrast and tones a lot more mm. yeah i mean look i think it, making pictures in general has become uh incredibly simple i mean i, I think that yeah. it's, it's in some ways it's there are people who can make pictures before they can even speak <laughs> friends whose, whose children know how to operate a, a, you know, a smartphone before they have much of a grasp of vocabulary. So I don't think it's difficult to make photographs. And I actually don't think it's particularly difficult to make a good photograph, but I do think that it's difficult. And I think mostly that's because the medium of photography is very generous. And um, by which I mean, you know, if you point a camera at something and make a picture, you know, there's a chance that the picture is going to be really interesting. And if there's a modicum of skill associated with it, it might actually be more than just interesting. What I do think is difficult, and one of the things that I think we forget about in our hyper-saturated image culture um, with Instagram and various other ways of, of sharing everybody's pictures, is that I, I think that it's difficult to consistently make good pictures yeah. and, to and to, to consistently make good photographs that have behind them some intention and some sense of responsibility um, to one's own vision as an artist, to one's short presence here on the planet, and to the relationship that they have with the world through the medium of photography. So I don't think it's difficult to make a good picture necessarily, and certainly it's not difficult to make pictures, but it's definitely difficult to make good pictures, whether they're consistently, whether they're in black and white or color would be my reaction to that. Yeah. Yeah, I can understand that because, I mean, if you looked at, say, places like um, Instagram, you're going to see standard images, you know, say beautiful people, beautiful buildings and all this sort of thing. And they're now so common, but they're not important. You know, the images like, you know, you're doing in your work and documentary work, they're the hard things, aren't they? Well, maybe. I mean, I don't. I don't, <laughs> I try not to be too self-aggrandizing about my process and what I do. I mean, certainly it's important to me. And, um, you know, I, I have an Instagram account. It's actually sort of a funny story. The only reason I have an Instagram account is because I was giving a public talk with the, with the photographer, Stephen Shore, um, who's a good friend of mine. And we had, uh, was a, a, a talk that was sponsored by Pratt Institute, where I teach. Um, and it was right at the time that Stephen was really deeply involved in using Instagram as a platform to share images. Okay. Um, and there were images that he was making on his iPhone. So he'd sort of set up some rules for himself. And in, until that point, I had been sort of aggressively, personally aggressively, not in a proselytizing way, but personally aggressively against having my work on Instagram. Um, but for the evening of that <laughs> event, I thought it would be a sort of a fun thing to go on Instagram. And now, I, I mean, I, I 
I guess I use Instagram. I'm making air quotes here. <laughs> um, I use Instagram, but I do it almost in spite of it. So I don't photograph myself having, you know, you know, a vacation. I don't photograph the food that I'm going to eat. I actually, I, I limit it only to pictures I make with the intent of publishing them the moment that I make them. And they have to be uh, in Harlem and at night. <laughs> so <laughs> so they, they really, in, in a way, the, the pictures that I make for Instagram are totally specific to that platform and have nothing to do other than the fact that they're pictures that I made on a different mm of different camera, they really have nothing to do with the majority of the rest of my work, which as you have acknowledged is black and white and long-term hmm. projects and um, and really intended for a different means of, uh, of, sh of communication and, and um, sharing with the world. Hmm. No, that's good. I mean, it's got a purpose. You know, fun has to be part of this world as well, doesn't it? Yes, and I think that's everybody defines fun in a different way. For me, as it relates to photography, you know, fun and success really aren't much more complicated than being able to continue to make the work that I make um, in a way that I find challenging, insightful, and progressive. And I mean progressive in terms of its own internal um, information of itself. So that I want to be able to go to, into the world, to use the camera, to explore the world, to come back with the results from that exploration, to think about them, to, to edit them, to distribute them into the various projects that I might have going. And then to have that process inform the next time that I go back out into the world. So it's, it's almost like a contained process of satisfaction to me, that's happiness and success. That's my relationship to the medium of photography. If I can, if I can still travel, if I can still walk around the streets of Manhattan and make photographs, bring them home, develop my film, edit the pictures, put them up in my studio, um, think about them, edit them into projects, exhibitions, or books, and have that visual vocabulary inform my my next relationship or my ongoing relationship with the world that I see, that's mm -hmm. success and happiness. Hmm. Yeah, I, I can understand that. It's all important. So how did you get into education and teaching at university? Oh, oh. well, uh, there's, well, there, there was, there's a sort of practical version of that. Um, I had started doing, well, look, I, first I went to a, a New York University as an undergrad and studied photography at the Tisch School of the Arts. Um, okay. That was a, a really good excuse to be in New York City, where I wanted to be to photograph on the streets and to follow mm. in the footsteps or sort of at least be on the same common ground as some of the photographers whose work had been so influential to me and whom I admired that at that time. Um, but as soon as I finished school, um, I, I managed to continue my practice and to continue and increase my 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 dedication and my work as a photographer. And it was around. I don't know, five, six, seven years after I graduated that people started to invite me to come back to school, whether it was NYU or um, other local um, uh, colleges, Columbia, Princeton, to give talks about my experience in the world of mostly photography, but also I, I run a, a not-for-profit publishing company that um, the Aikens Press Foundation, which has been around since the mid-1960s and has published some of the most important photography books in the United States, books by Walker Evans and, uh, and Lee Friedlander, to name a couple. Um, and so my, my connection to the medium of photography isn't just through my own practice as a photographer, but also as an editor, publisher, and curator. So I, I think that that uh, was of some interest to people who were running curricula, running departments and uh, photography curricula who wanted to expose their students to aspects of the results of studying photography that weren't just about being a practitioner of the medium. Um, and so I started off by lecturing. And then um, a friend of mine, a really close dear friend, fantastic photographer, a man named Paul McDonough, who had taught at Pratt for many, many years, called me to say that their, a professor who had taught one of their advanced printing classes had become ill and was, not, was sudden, suddenly not available to teach uh, the fall semester. This was in, I think, the year 2000. And this was like in late August. So they they needed 
uh, somebody to fill in very quickly. And he asked if he could put my name forth to the chair of the department. One thing led to another. They hired me to teach that job. Then they asked me to stay on for the spring. And now it's 21 years later. So um, I, I have gone on to, to be you know, pretty significantly involved in Pratt um, in terms of uh, being a faculty advisor in the board of directors and helping with some of the institutional advancement, collaborating with, excuse me, various department chairs on, um, on programs, on exhibitions. Um, I wrote a course called Curatorial Practices, which has been um, offered as an elective for some years. Um, so teaching photography has always been a really important part of my practice because it, it compels me to face the things that are fairly easy to take for granted about my own philosophy and mm -hmm. re reassess them uh, in a way that allows me to, to teach them, right? So, you know, and, and, to, and to be honest about what the medium can do for me and, and what I think it could do for other people. So, so it has been a really important part of my practice. I will say that this semester, um, I'm teaching right now at Pratt. I've got five or six weeks left of the semester. This will be my last semester teaching at Pratt uh, for the foreseeable future. I won't, I won't say I'm retiring because I, I don't think anybody should retire necessarily, especially not at the age of 50. But um, I, I only teach one class a semester and I only have ever taught one class a semester. So I do all these other things that I've already mentioned with the publishing company and I sit on a couple of not-for-profit boards and I really need to leave time for my own work. Hmm. And this is a particularly, I think, important sort of juncture in the momentum of my work. And I just felt like I, I needed to be a little bit more selfish and take a take a little bit of take a spell of time off from from teaching. So you catch me at the uh, at the sort of sunset of at least one significant <laughs> phase of my teaching, which frankly I'm I'm really excited about. I mean, I'm looking forward to having the spring entirely to myself. Sounds good. Yeah, mm. it will be. I think sounds really nice. I mean, we've spoke to quite a few educators and. I know a few of them have always said it really keeps them current with what's going on in technologies and ideas and trends. Do you find it really pushes you then? Well, I would say it pushes me in a lot of ways. It certainly doesn't push me in terms of technology, which is just my own choice. I, I teach, uh, mm -hmm. so the classes that I typically teach, I teach a beginning photography class in the darkroom. Um, oh, so I'm nice. teaching people how to develop film and how to work with a camera, but also how to begin to think about developing projects. Then I teach uh, the curatorial practices that uh, class that I mentioned, which is really about tapping into the resources that I have after living in New York City for 32 years, which include friends and colleagues who are curators or um, archivists of really important collections here in the city. And those range from curator at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, curator at the Museum of Modern Art, the Museum of the City of New York, the Brooklyn Museum, smaller private collections um, like the Alice Austin House, if anybody's familiar with that great photographer, Alice Austin, you know, so really to give my students uh, exposure to who, you know, what happens on the other side of that table. You know, yeah. what, what is the role that a curator plays in the history of photography, both retrospectively and going forward? And not just curators, but also editors and publishers. And that's a, I, I think that's a really fun class. It's an incredibly complicated class for me to teach and requires calling in a lot of favors. But, um, hmm. uh, it, you know, it, 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 in that way, with that class, it keeps me in touch with my colleagues in a way that is outside of my own work as a photographer, which is also good. Um, so that pushes me, but I don't teach, um, I don't teach digital photography and I don't teach Lightroom or Photoshop. Um, I teach an advanced uh, junior research class sometimes that is a two semester long cycle, which is really a, a critique class based around the idea that people who are forming their vision as artists really need to understand what else is happening in the community, both in a contemporary way and in a historical way, so that if people are working on a project that has been touched upon by other artists, photographers, filmmakers, writers, whatever it may be, mm -hmm. that they really owe it to themselves and their practice to know about that and to make decisions about to what degree it might influence their work. And so, yes, mm -hmm. teaching has always really pushed my personal practice, because like, like I think I said a minute ago, in a way, 
for lack of a better expression, it keeps me honest about the medium of photography and what I think it can do and what it can do well. Uh, but it hasn't, really pushed nice. me, it hasn't pushed me technically, so to speak. No, no, that's fair enough, yeah. Uh, but that's a nice way of thinking because I know there are some um, educational establishments that are basically just preparing you for the real world. So, um, for instance, like in London, you know, they're going to teach you portrait photography because if you want a job, that's how you earn money. And for me, what you're teaching is a total different thing and more useful in its life skills and it's everything, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think that there are definitely different programs that have a different focus, right? Yes, uh, you know, definitely. For, yeah. Well, like more, for instance, I think what you're talking about would be more like a trade focus. Like people really need to understand mm. how to use the tools in order to fulfill the obligation they might have if they are being hired as a photographer. And I, I think one of the things that Pratt, during my 20 plus year tenure associated with it, one of the things that Pratt, you know, I don't, prides itself in isn't the right the right phrase, but is explicit about is that you know we're really teaching people how to be how to how to think of themselves as artists using photography. Now, I, I will say I'll add with with some haste um, that one of the things that I I really try to tell my students, um, or maybe a better phrase is one of the things I try to disabuse them of is the idea that by getting a, a BFA, a Bachelor of Fine Arts, or by going to school to study to be an artist somehow guarantees that you'll be an artist. <laughs> and I, and, I, and I, I tell them that I think the best thing that they can do is get a job, a real job, um, mm -hmm. that, that allows a certain amount of time, even if they have to work harder than most people, to keep their practice as a photographer separate from the requirement to make a living off of it. And that's a privilege mm -hmm. that I have, um, that I've had for myself. And now look, I publish books that, that deal with photography, but I also publish books that deal with dance and history and criticism. Mm -hmm. um, and I sit on boards of directors that are deeply connected to the arts in New York City and to archives and New York Public Library. And those things are not unrelated to my practice as a photographer, but they are, they broaden my experience. And they mm. also they also pay the bills. So I do not <laughs> I, I do not depend on my work as a photographer to make a living. Now, it's great when I sell photographs to private collectors or a museum or when a book that I've published does well, because all of that income, which is, to be frank, quite modest, but all of it goes back into paying for my film and my chemicals and my paper and and my travel and in some cases the next book that i'm going to do so i'm not saying i don't make money but it's not part of what is necessary making money from my photographs doesn't doesn't factor into the equation um of whether or not i make the photographs you know and hmm. and i think for some people that's a really slippery slope uh, you know i've seen it happen with colleagues and and with some students where you know they really understandably become so preoccupied with the need to make a living um, out of the degree that they got in college in photography that they their own practice gets marginalized and then ultimately atrophies and disappears and in its place hmm. is is this kind of like a this you know ball and chain this professional ball and chain where they're constantly at the whim of editors of trends of what's popular and they haven't been able to kind of protect the the part of their practice and their process that really needs to stay intact in order to be, I think, an artist, if not a relevant artist, at least a successful artist by the terms that I defined earlier about what success is. Hmm. And I think some of that is coming from experience and age as well, because I don't necessarily think you can just learn something in two or three years. I think that's right. I mean, I think from a technical point of view, and I say this to my students just in the interest of full disclosure and because, you know, I don't want to be a part of, uh, of an, a game of illusions. I, I tell them that, look, if I, if I had their undivided attention for a couple of weeks, I could probably teach them everything that they needed to know from mm. a technical point of view to be mm. 
reasonably good photographers and that it's everything else besides that that is, that is important you know how do you form your own practice how do you form your own relationship to the medium that is self-sustaining that's mm -hmm. another thing that students forget is that you know when they graduate they don't have a default audience of people that are talking about and caring about their work and if they haven't found their by the time they graduate or very soon thereafter if they haven't found a way to sustain their own practice you know, I, I would say eight out of 10 of them end up doing something that has nothing to do with photography and don't pick up a camera again. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I enjoy this so much because it's nothing to do with my day job. Um, mm. My degree is related to my job and it's why I chose the field. Um, and then I just suddenly found photography late in life. Um, so I, I'm able to do this and be passionate and, you know, I go to bed thinking about it and wake up thinking about it and I'm the same as you. I can't wait to get, I've got a data room here. I can't wait to get my data room. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is a great, uh, a great place to kind of, um, especially during the last year and a half here with the shutdown. I mean, I spent mm -hmm. during the first, uh, six months of COVID when we were really, you know, locked down here in New York City and in quarantine and, you know, generally very afraid of what was happening because we had no knowledge. I mean, I spent, uh, I spent 80 days in my darkroom, you know, over a period of about, <laughs> of, of, over a period of about a hundred. I mean, so I was, wow. I was like six, seven, eight days at a time. I made, I made more than 1200 prints during this period. I totally, I totally caught up with work that I hadn't printed from as far back as the 19, early 1990s. And now it's all done. It's all, you know, filed, scanned, archived, organized. I mean, it was really <laughs> kind of, kind of incredible. I look back on that and I think, you know, like there, you know, we, we all have experienced loss during COVID and I don't mean to, uh, hmm. um, to, to, to trivialize that in any way, but for sure there, for some of us, there have been, you know, the proverbial silver linings. And for me, it was being able to, uh, to really catch up with what I thought was, you know, work that I probably wouldn't be able to catch up with until, you know, I don't know, a decade from now or something. It's all, hmm. it's all done. So that, that was kind of great. That, and if I didn't have a darkroom in my house, you know, I, I, I wasn't leaving the house and none of us were. So I, I could just, hmm. you know, go downstairs and essentially print all day, every day. So that, that was kind of a great place to put the anxiety of, uh, of this horrible time into something productive. Hmm. I know what you mean. Yeah, I did a lot of playing and learning, that's for sure, during this time. Yeah. Great bit of fun. Uh, for me, I always find um, the dark room comes in, um, I'll not use any local terms. Um, it comes in times where i really got to be into it and then i'll do a few hours in it and then sometimes i'll have um tea or whatever in my family and then i'll go back in at night as well and then the next day i'm eager to get back in and then i'll be i don't want to go back in for a few months it's mm -hmm. really strange like that mm. yeah um, but um some of that's also i have maybe haven't got a specific print i want to do or I've not thought of something, and then suddenly I'll think of an idea, and, I'm, and that's when I'm at my best because I'm, I'm more creative then, uh, and I'm in a good, happy place. Uh, and you know, mistakes are completely fine because I'm trying something I've never done before. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, for me, the darkroom, uh, I, as enjoyable as I find the process of making prints, it's. Uh, it's very much a discipline. I mean, I, you know, I have a, uh, that's one of the things that comes with age. You made a reference to age and, and what one learns about the medium. <laughs> I mean, I have a very particular process wherein I, since I'm using film, all of my images are latent images. I'm not looking at what I'm doing while I'm doing it on the back of a camera, right? So I may be traveling for six weeks. I'll shoot a hundred rolls of film. I haven't seen a single photograph in that period. In fact, there's always some anxiety associated with whether or not the camera's working. Now, I know my camera pretty well. I, I would like to think I would know if it were not working. But then I come home and I, and I for several weeks, I develop all that film. Then I let it sit for a period of time um, so that the experience of, of making the photographs becomes less and less 
a part of the process of editing the pictures because no one else can relate to that experience. They can only relate to the picture. And so I find that my sense of responsibility is really to the, the prints, the photographs that result from the experience. It doesn't mean that the process of editing them isn't informed by my experience, but I would like it to be in a way secondary or at least equal to the emphasis uh, on the picture itself. And then I'm just in the darkroom for, you know, I, I print somewhere between 300 and 500 prints a year. So for a year's work for the rolls of film that I shoot in that year, um, on average, my archives end up telling me that I have, like, some, like I said, somewhere between 300 and 500 prints out of a year's work. Well, I can make 20 prints at a time at a, in a darkroom session. And so, you know, you do the math and hmm. that's how many days I need to be in the darkroom to maintain my practice. So, hmm. you know, when I go into the darkroom, it's a little bit less about a kind of uh, creative experience where I'm waiting for inspiration and more like I've got this number of prints that I've already <laughs> edited and earmarked as worth printing. I've just got to go in there and consistently knock it out. And so, hmm. yeah, I mean, I understand, like for me, the print is very important, but it's really only important to the degree that it says beautiful representation of the negative as possible. I'm not, I'm not hmm. doing a lot of manipulation in the dark room. The creative process for me doesn't happen in the dark room. It's just one technical part of the process, if you hmm. know what I mean. So, so as much as I love the dark room, I, I don't wait for inspiration to go in there. If, if I did, I, I probably <laughs> would be, I'd probably be 10 years behind. <laughs> <laughs> no but that that's the thing isn't it everyone uses it for a different reason it's the same as why some people don't like myself spend much time digitally editing um mm. i'll be honest i'm not good at it i don't want to be good at it i much prefer the same as you for me it's about taking the shot and concentrating there in mm. camera as much as possible but i do love messing about in the dark room um but I think that's because I'm only like three years in my dark room experience. So mm. I haven't built up that experience like yourself. Yeah, no, my, my father is a photographer and I grew up in the dark room. I mean, literally I was, I had, <laughs> I, I was printing when I was, you know, I was in the dark room when I was two, three, four, five years old, but I, wow. I was working in the summertime. I was working as a professional printer um, for my father's business, you know, before I, you know, between my, you know, like the, during the summer when I was in high school and then for a year when I went back after college, I printed and, you know, I was, I was printing negatives from, you know, Aaron Siskin and Harry Callahan and Harold Edgerton and Bruce Davidson and just to name some of his clients at the time. So um, hmm. I had real, you know, pretty extraordinary exposure to, uh, to really fine um, darkroom work and printing, you know, museum quality printing. And many of these pictures that I worked on during my summers ended up in collections, public and private. So yeah, for me, the, the respect for that part of the process um, has been an important part of my work. That's good. Yeah. It's really, it's really nice. So, I mean, what we'll have to do is tell people about some of your images. I mean, like you say, it's quite clear, um, like your, some of your work, like the people in New York, for me, that is about you doing the craft that you've seen these amazing people do. And it's New York, and it? it's why everyone wants to go to New York. Mm -hmm. Cer certainly some, some of us. Um, yeah, the, <laughs> the, pe the people in New York project, um, I mean, that, that's a very particular project. And it was, mm -hmm. there's a, it was a very particular motivation for, for making those photographs. I used a, 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 a six centimeter, two quarter square camera, um, a Mamiya 6 camera, which is, if anybody knows, that camera is actually a rangefinder medium oh, format yeah. camera. So it doesn't have a, a mirror that flops around and makes a lot of noise. Um, the 50 millimeter lens is incredibly sharp and the lens has the shutter in it. And so, uh, it makes it particularly quiet. Um, it's, it's, uh, the 50 on a two and a quarter camera is roughly the equivalent of like a 28 millimeter lens on a 35 millimeter camera. So it's very wide angle. Um, mm -hmm. so if people have a chance to look at those photographs, if it feels like the people in the picture are within um, and arm's reach, they are. And that was a really important part of the process to me. I wanted to be right there with people. Um, and then I made the prints life-size. So 
um, there are 36 inch square prints mounted to aluminum and in the actual finished prints the the people are nearly or in some cases actually life size um, so a room a room filled with these portraits of people like for me is sort of like a really interesting Manhattan street you know yeah. I, I want I want it, I, and I think of the the process of photography, as John Sarkowski once eloquently put it, like he did most things, um, is very much like pointing. And those of us who ha are lucky enough to be photographers, of course, have a result from that at which we point, right? We have our pictures. Um, and for me, being able to sort of point at these fascinating looking people on the streets of Manhattan and then fill a room with them was kind of a, a powerful and exciting thing to be doing. I haven't made those pictures for years now. Um, hmm. not, not because I, I don't want to, or I don't think that there's still that kind of photograph to be made in Manhattan, but just because the natural progression of, of projects and engagement with the medium changes hmm. and, and evolves as, as we do it. So, um, but yeah, that, that's a fun project. And, and you know, it's hard for people to see it on the internet. But uh, those hmm. big, big prints of the portraits of those people really uh, are, I think, pretty powerful stuff for me. Anyway. Yeah, that, that'd be cool to see that size. You just can't imagine. And I think that's the thing that um, because now we spend more of our time on laptops and mobiles, we we don't think of a picture as anything bigger than that. So. Yeah. And, and people, I mean, you know, with my students, my beginning students in particular, I remember people asking me, well, you know, when digital photography became much more prevalent about 10 years ago, and it, you know, wasn't just in the, in the professional sphere, like people were actually making their own digital pictures and then sharing them through whatever media platforms they, they were, um, that people would say, oh, do, do you think that, you know, darkroom photography is dead? And you know, I, I might have said that I think it might, it's in jeopardy, but very quickly I learned, and it has has been reinforced every year that I teach beginning photography, that there's actually a real desire for people, certainly for my students, my 18, 19, 20 year old students, to actually be engaged in a physical process where the result is an object. You know, it's sort of like uh, pe people talk about, oh, well, I mean, I have this also as a publisher. People say, oh, well, why are you still printing books? You know, why are you still making books that are physical objects? And I mean, the, the easy answer is because I prefer that <laughs> to digital yeah. technology. Um, the, but the other answer is because there's a huge market for it, because people have a relationship with their physical environments that goes beyond a backlit screen. And, you know, my, my students are even more thrilled now by that, you know, almost cliche of watching their prints develop in the developer, because they may have made thousands of photographs on their, their electronic devices, but very few of them have, have ever turned those pictures into objects. And mm -hmm. that's, that's a really important part of my practice. Now, I'm not a Luddite, I'm not anti-technology. I think that, you know, the digital platform is a powerful means of sharing and 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 spreading uh important elements of the uh, of the analog part of the medium i scan all of my prints after i make them i have an active relationship with with my website my work is published all over the internet so I, i'm not against hmm. it but i think of it as subservient ultimately to either the the prints themselves or and this is another really important part of my practice or books so i've been publishing work of my books of my own work for i guess since 2007 when my first book came out um, and you know that's a really exciting thing because of course it's an opportunity to have total control over the physicality of it the object the binding the design the printing but also the the editing the beginning the middle the end the relationship between pictures to finish it, to make a thousand of them or 500 or 1500 or whatever the run is, and then to get them out into the world. Uh, you know, it's, I think it's really important for, for artists to finish things to the degree that they no longer have control over them because it reminds us of how important the process of getting there is. And so books for me have played that role even more than prints, although prints are certainly the starting point. That's an interesting point. Hmm. Yeah, I've not thought about it in that way because we thought about finishing projects, but then I suppose 
And printed medium is a really good way of ending it or mounting it or, you know, exhibiting it somewhere. Hmm. Yeah, there's not much you can do once it's out in the world. I mean, there's, there's a funny story that uh, a friend of mine who was a poet, uh, who's an important feminist poet in the middle part of the 20th century, was friends with uh, W.H. Auden. And Auden, for a while, as some people may know, lived here in New York on St. Mark's Place. And she told this great story about, um, I don't remember what year it was, probably the 1950s or early 60s, a collection of Auden's poems had just been published. And there was a, this a famous St. Mark's bookstore, and there was a window display of, of all these books. And this friend of mine was walking down the street with Auden and he excused himself and he said, one moment, please. And he walked into the bookstore and he took one of the books off the stack and opened it up to some page and changed a line of his poetry and then and put it back on the stack. Now, obviously, yeah. that's, that's just one copy of the book, but it, it throws into relief the fact that once it's finished and published and out in the world, we no longer have control over it or even necessarily own it. And I just think that that's mm. an important important thing for photographers, especially younger photographers, to to find a way to have be a part of their practice. So, you know, if any of your listeners are are, you know, just starting out and and you know, thinking about how how do they how do they create milestones in their process? How do they create things that measure particular parts of their process? Finishing projects whether it's putting them between two permanent covers, finishing a, you know, a, a blog or, or a web presence or, um, or an exhibition is really important because you can always go back and look at that, whether it's six months later or six years later. And that's a really kind of pure measure of what one's thinking was at that moment. So, you know, I could go back and look at books that I made, some of them in the beginning when I couldn't afford to publish books or didn't have the traction in the photography world to have people be interested in publishing books. I would self-publish or, or create by hand these projects. And I can go back and I can look and there, there are pictures that I edited when I was 20 or 25 or 30 or 35 or whatever it is. And I can look at those things and I can say, gee, I, I would have done this differently. I wouldn't have included this picture or, or I would have changed the order here. And that is as pure a measure of one's own progress as anything, because to be able to even recognize that is to mm -hmm. recognize growth, right? Evolution. Mm -hmm. and, and the same goes with things that I'm proud of. I mean, I can go back and look at books and think, wow, that was that was great. I'm really proud that I thought of that and I did that. And then similarly, that's that's important to be able to have those things to sort of practical lifelines when we wake up and think what the hell am i doing you know mm. you can reach you can reach for a project that you finished and it, it tells you what you're doing or at least what you were doing when you finished that project i think that's an important part of practice yeah i think that's definitely something we can take away without a doubt um it's, i think it's something i've started realizing to finish stuff because like you say then you move on to something new as well which is equally as important don't want to be doing the same thing all the time anyway no indeed not hmm i mean that's why you've got you know a variety um behind you aren't you i mean uh, i like the um totem project even that if you see for me because i love like um seeing abandoned things like that mm. well so i mean i have I have a few different projects that, to me, mo almost all my projects are long-term projects. And it's not, um, it's sort of the antithesis of, oh, I'm gonna go here and photograph this and you know spend a week or a month or even a year and then come back and turn it into something and then be done with it. Um, you know, my work has been for 31 years, at least one major part of it, has been <laughs> about trying to um, build a relationship with, understand, and continue to understand more about some of the nuances that happen in this huge country that is the United States that are off the beaten path. And so I'm less interested in, in what's happening sort of in popular culture or on the main street, unless it's the main street of a really small town. And I'm, mm. I'm much, much more interested in you know, what the what the average person is doing, what are they dedicated to? What what are they what's their recreation? What moves them? What are they excited by? How do they relate to their past? And how how are 
I mean, it's a, a phrase that I've been using for the last year and a half after my book, The Way West, was published uh, in March of 2020. The idea that people ritualize their history and participate in those rituals. And in some mm -hmm. cases, people don't even think of them that way. I mean, that's sort of like a you know, an intellectual construct. But the fact is, and this isn't specific to the United States by any means. I know that this happens in, in I mean, to even a greater degree, I'm sure, because of the longevity of the United Kingdom. You know, there, there are, in any culture, there are things, there are manifestations of our collective history that people participate in on a daily basis. And so that I, I'm interested in how the past is manifest in the present. So it's not about, you know, nostalgia or wishing things could be like they were. It's sort of about, you know, what what does the presence of the past in the present tell us? What do we learn? And I think I think photography is a particularly uh, good medium for showing that. So the totems project, which are these uh, abandoned structures all throughout the, the West, particularly in the Plains states. So you know, Nebraska, Wyoming, Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, some Idaho, um, a little bit of Kansas, Oklahoma. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I, I have this sort of approach, this sort of MO to my travel, and I, I won't go on an interstate, you know, a, a throughway. I stay on side roads and back roads, and in many cases, dirt roads. Um, and, you know, and this is just one small thing, one small element of the things that I photograph, but at a certain point, as many of my projects start from, I realized a pattern in my work of photo photographing these buildings. And there was something about them that was very anthropomorphic. I mean, I felt like they, um, they were like the people who had initially built them. There was some imprint of those people on these things. And a friend of mine who is a, a powerful, by which I mean rich and influential philanthropist in New York City, when she saw these pictures, she said, um, poverty preserves. Now, poverty does a lot of horrible things, obviously, as mm -hmm. well. But, but, you know, most of these buildings are in places where there just isn't the money or the will to tear them down and replace them with a Starbucks, right? You see, yeah. you know, an, ab an abandoned school in the middle of a 10,000 acre agricultural field in Nebraska, like, why not leave it there? And so, you know, mm -hmm. the longer it sits there, the more it tells us about what is absent. And I think photography does that really well. So the totems, is a, I think, I don't remember how many pictures there are in the book, but um, maybe 50 or 60 yeah. photographs of these, of these abandoned um, churches, uh, homesteads, um, claim shacks, um, schoolhouses, uh, barns, etc. But it's really not meant to be about nostalgia so much as it is about, you know, pointing to the phenomena of the presence of the past um, in yeah. our current culture. I mean, one of them, um, now, is this some sort of church house? Because it, it looks like it's in the middle of a field and it looks like it's actually being farmed all the way around it. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that, that's an old schoolhouse, the one you're talking about. Okay. And, and in fact, that's the case with many of them. They, they sit, so at some point, there was a road that went very close to that, perhaps even mm -hmm. in front of it. Um, and the road was no longer useful and got, you know, dug up and turned into farmland. Um, right. And you can, in this picture, you can see that the, the tractors, the plows, literally plow around the building. <laughs> um, and so it becomes, a, it becomes a kind of part of the landscape that is, well, it's beautiful to me. But it's yeah. also, you know, this sort of amazing reminder. This like it's this this remnant. That's why I call them totems, right? And one one definition of a totem is, you know, that it it's a uh, it's a thing. I mean, we think of totem poles, right? You know, hmm. where an indigenous culture has created an object that is meant, in their absence, to tell people who come upon it something essential about their culture. And that's what I think that these buildings do. You know, they tell us something essential about the westward expansion, about the relationship that the kind of European settlers had with the land. And then, of course, inherently what that has done to the people who were indigenous to that land and how it marked. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of layers beneath 
what is actually represented in the rectangle of the photograph, which of course I would like to think is one of the definitions of what makes a good picture. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very, very loud in that sense. And it, you know, it, there's such variety in your work, and obviously the Lens Scratch article is all about this Coney Island um, water dance, which just makes me laugh because obviously there are many parts of the US, like California, you associate sunshine, warm water, but that isn't this, is it? Well, you know, it's interesting. The, the the book that you're talking about, Coney Island Water Dance, which I just published uh, two exactly two months ago, basically, that's mm -hmm. actually a book that has been done for a long time. I mean, okay. the the work the work was mostly made uh, in the early 1990s, 1990, 91 through about 2014. But the bulk of the pictures were made. Um, in the very early 90s and early and, and mid 90s. And the, the, there's a mixture of photographs in that book. So there are photographs that come from my year long or winter long experience with uh, the Polar Bear Club. And some people may have heard of the Polar Bear Club. It's, it's a group of people um, in New York who gather in a ritual way, ritualized way um, uh, every Sunday and they're part of this club and they, they have a ritual to their ritual, which is, you know, they, they get together, they, they hang out, they socialize, they exercise, and then they all run into the freezing cold winter Coney Island Atlantic Ocean um, for about 10 or 15 minutes. And then they come out of the water and they sort of dance around and try to warm up. But um, I, I did this with them with a waterproof camera for um, the summer of the uh, winter of 1990 into 91. But I am fascinated by what water does to people. And obviously, really cold water does something different than really warm water. But hmm. that book that book only has 30 pictures in it. It's meant to be a really kind of simple homage to the relationship people have with, with water. Um, only, uh, only about a third of those pictures are in cold water. The rest of them are pictures that I made in the summer uh, on Coney Island. And, um, I photographed a lot on Coney Island for about 20 years, photographed the sideshows and um, the boardwalk and the fishing piers and the surrounding community and the beach. But there's something about the quality of the pictures in the water that I have always found to be probably the most satisfying of those various things that I've paid attention to in Coney Island, which is Coney Island is a you know, an incredibly history, fascinating place. It's the end of several of the train lines that we have here in New York. And it's really a, it's a, it's a melting pot of the various cultures from the Russian immigrant community to the Hasidic Jewish community, uh, community to the, the black and Hispanic communities from all around the Brooklyn neighborhoods, but as far away as the Bronx. And then there's sort of a, a richer enclave called Seagate and they all swim together in, in this ocean next to the amusement park. And, so that, that that project really was to me is about this the the homogenizing effect, if you will, and I don't mean hmm. that in a negative way, but the homogenizing, equalizing effect that water has on people, and everybody is having a good time, even if they're introspective and and calm. It's about play and disinhibition, which felt to me like something we needed right now, which is why I published the book um, this this year. I say that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's nice to see something positive and fun and happy, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, especially out of all your work. I mean, you, you could have, you know, talked about any of the others at that point. I mean, um, you know, the way Western, I mean, for me, um, coming from the UK, th these are interesting images in the sense of it's different cultures again and it's the empty great plains it's all this sort of thing you say mm -hmm. well look i mean it, it, one doesn't need to be reminded uh necessarily although i like to remind myself of this all the time you know there's 340 million people in this country and you know <laughs> that you know there there's all sorts of political polarities and social polarities and you know that's obviously happening all in a lot of places in the world right now no less so here in the United States, as I'm sure everybody knows. But um, there's also this thing that we have in common. And, you know, what we have in common as people in general, but also what we have in common as as Americans. And 
And I think it is our, our relatively short history. It is our land and our relationship to the land. Um, it is our ambition to be sovereign individuals and to experience um, our own space over which we want to um, assert some control, even if that's a one-bedroom apartment in Manhattan. Um, in the case, in the case of these pictures, you know, it, it, uh, for me, it was um, well. The, the main motivation was really to experience this this part of the country that I love so much. And you know, I have uh, I don't know how much you were able to glean about my practice, but you know, I have for thirty-one years, I have spent. Um, with very few exceptions. So maybe one or two years, I couldn't uh, travel because of circumstances, but I have spent at least a month on the road um, photographing without much of an agenda. And uh, so I've spent a lot of time in the American South and Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana. Um, earlier in an email, you made reference to uh, Highway 61, which runs between Memphis, Tennessee and New Orleans and is known as the famous Blues Highway of Robert Johnson and uh, John Lee Hooker and some of the really important um, uh, blues musicians were who lived along that uh, along that stretch of highway, and so I spent a lot of time in the South and in the Southwest. And for the last 15 years or so, the focus for me has really been the Plains states. And a part of my my investment in my time and sort of existential investment in in photographing this area is because I'm fascinated right now, probably will be forever, by how the mythology of the West, as it is portrayed in, you know, books and films and just the general preconceptions and oversimplifications of hmm. our, our own American culture, how that is, uh, how it relates to either in an, an incongruous way or in an exaggerated caricatured way, how it relates to what's actually happening, what it actually looks like in rural Montana or Wyoming or Nebraska or wherever I happen to be. And so, I, you know, I, I just feel like every time I go and photograph and come back with, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pictures that I then sort out over a period of several months, that I, I'm constantly being surprised by what I learn, what, what kinds of nuances I learn about, about American history, about American culture, particularly as it is manifest uh, in, in my present day. Um, so it just continues to be a deeply satisfying process. And the Way West was, uh, you know, a very carefully edited distillation of thousands and thousands of photographs made over a period of, uh, of, of 10 years. Um, so that, that uh, was the book that came out last year before you know, the Coney Island book. Um, and that really represents the kind of focus of, of my work. It, it follows, it's sort of, a, right now it's a trilogy. The, the first book of, on the subject of my travels in the United States that I published is called O Public Road. And that basically en encompassed mostly the South, little bits and pieces of, of my beginnings of my work in, in the Plains states in the West. Um, but that was also, that was 20 years. So I published that book in 2009, I think. And that, that was 19 years of road trips, of traveling in the United States. And wow. was really, like I said, the first installment. Then the Totems book, which is a much more narrow focus, as we've just discussed, and, and, now, and now the way west. And the work that I've been doing the last couple of years has been in New England. Um, so I, I expect, I, mean, I was born in Boston and I was raised in Concord, Massachusetts and came to New York to go to college and have spent a lot of time photographing the rest of the United States really thoroughly um, and hadn't really paid a lot of attention to where I come from, uh, at least where I come from here. So it's been actually really exciting and productive for the last, uh, I started in 2019, it's been a little bit sidetracked a little bit. Uh, by COVID, but I, I've also been traveling a lot this year and 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 last year, and so the, so my next region of focus really is is New England, and I expect that you know there'll probably be a a book in a number of years when I feel like I've got a critical mass of those pictures, and that'll be the fourth installment in what I think of like a think of it as a lifelong project, really. Hmm. That's really nice though. Um, it's really cool that you've got such a big area um, to keep visiting because. I mean, the differences, you've only just got to look at your photos and see they are so different places. Yeah, it would take many lifetimes 
to do it to do it justice part not not the least of which is because you know by the time i make my way around the map uh mm -hmm. you know 30 years later everything's changed again so i could just keep doing it in perpetuity i, I wish i could live forever in order to do that because there's mm -hmm. very little that's more satisfying to me than that than the, the long-term project mm -hmm. I think that's nice though, and I hope it's something um, your students learn that um, photography isn't always about short-term gain sort of thing. No, in fact, it's uh, the short-term gain is uh, what do we say, a red herring. I think it's uh, mm. in many in many cases it does more harm than good. What um, we need it, we like we all want to be appreciated for the work we do, and and have other people say, hey, look, this is amazing or moving or we learned something from it, and you know, and that has to happen in some for form or another. But uh, mm -hmm. if that's the main goal and satisfaction, I think people are are really much more vulnerable to external influence um, than than they need to be. And it's a it's a dangerous formula. Yeah, but I feel that's more people than not. I think it, that's the common conception of photography now. Um, well, that's where I think we're at. Overlapped. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't disagree with that. I think that's probably right. But, uh, hmm. you know, look, it's okay, uh, hmm. to not be an artist, to not be a photographer. No. That's what you had to do. So there's plenty of satisfaction that can be gained by not dedicating your life to it. Um, yeah. you know, but for me, it's sort of, it's, it's, it's either, or you're either fully in or not. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That's good. Nice to hear. Well, thank you so much for going through those questions. Um, I think what we need to do is tell all the lovely people out there how they can find you online, Peter. Ah, well, there's a website that is my name, peterkoffice.com. Um, that all turns up on a basic search, Google or whatever other search engine you use. Um, my books are all available in the UK if your listeners are in the UK or here in the United States if they're here um, through Amazon, uh, through bookstore.org, through my own uh, website, publications website, which is purplemartinpress.com, which you can also find through my normal website. It's pretty easy to find, uh, find stuff um, about me on on the internet and i would just as a plug you know i released my book the way west um, in new york city on march 12th of 2020 my book launch party which was scheduled to be at a gallery here in midtown was canceled because of covid um, the book got a, a lot of press and uh, including in the uk actually the guardian did a big feature on it and mm -hmm. uh the daily mail did a big feature on it as they did also of my of my newest book uh coney island water dance so if people have any interest um and they're feeling generous the best way um to support the work that i do would be to to buy my book so um there's my there's my plug. <laughs> so uh, the books are and, and my other books are available too. Oh, oh, Public Road and and Totems and a book I did about a Romanian cemetery called the Mary Cemetery. All, all that stuff is is uh, is available on Amazon and and through my uh, my fantastic book distributor Artbook DAP, um, which you can find at artbook.org. But um, all that is is pretty easy um, based on a search. So. So uh, th th thanks ahead of time to uh, to your your audience for for thinking of that and for going to dig up more information. That would be fantastic. No, it's cool. The, there'll be links on the show notes, so it'll make it easy for everyone to jump on there anyway. That'd be great. That'd be no, great. no, it's cool. So my last thing, Peter, is I do this pay it forward scheme. Um, who do you think I should be checking out in the future, whether it's photography or coming on the podcast? Wow. Well, um, mm -hmm. I, I have some suggestions, but I also, as a uh, courtesy to the people whom I would mention um, to you, I would do so privately rather than on the podcast itself so if you want to follow mm -hmm. up with a, with an email i can give you the names of, the, of a couple of people i mean um 
yeah, I mean, you have such a variety of people on your show already that I, I, I would not, uh, I wouldn't suggest a particular kind of person because you seem to be covering the bases pretty well. But uh, there are some people out there who I think have some important things to say. Um, hmm. I'll, I'll send you, uh, I'll send you a couple of names. No, that's really nice. Yeah. No, that's really cool. So all I can say is thank you for enlightening us about your work. Um, please do keep it up and it's nice to see what's going to become of uh, New England as well. Well, thank you, Andrew. And thanks again for your interest and especially thanks to everybody who's listened to this. And uh, um, I wish you luck and I hope everyone stays safe and, and uh, has a fulfilling fall and next couple of months. Yeah. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care. Take Andrew. care. Cheers, Peter. Bye bye. Hey, y'all, I just want to say thank you so much for listening to that episode. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed um, interviewing. Please don't forget, if you want to get involved, I'm starting to put out there on social media uh, the list of guests for that week. You are welcome to submit any questions you want to ask, and hopefully I'll read them out for you. Whether you want to do that through Instagram, um, direct message, you can just click. If you click on the direct message bit, uh, there's a button there and you can record and send that right across uh, but there's many apps you can do or email me or send me a dm on facebook instagram whatever that's cool with me for those of you who want to support the show please don't forget uh, itunes reviews are always appreciated and obviously i will read them out uh, the following week for you and i tend to use them on social media so that's all very much appreciated if you'd like to help contribute towards the show, then don't forget there's my coffee page where you can submit anything from $1 pounds or upwards and I'll keep a note on there what I'm trying to achieve um, as the months and years go by. For those who want to keep coming back to the show, don't forget you can just subscribe in your friendly podcast app of choice and there's a weekly newsletter on my website flogger.co.uk so that's p-h-l-o-g-g-e-r and you'll get an automated email from me and that tells you each week uh, what's gone up on the website so it's the podcasts and any articles I've wrote so yeah thank you so much and I'll see you again soon bye